He was a hero to some, a villain to others, and wherever he rode, people spoke his name in whispers. He had no friends, this Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other, the acrid smell of gut smoke. Thanks for tuning in for the Via Pony Express podcast, your source for everything you need to know about Jonah Hex, as well as news and reviews focusing on Western comics in general. I'm Susan Hillwig, author of An Illustrated History of Jonah Hex. Joining me as always, we have Dwayne Hendrickson of the Hex-centric blog, Matching Dragoons. Howdy. And let's not forget Jaron Schroeder, curator of the website, The Jonah Hex Corral. Kiora. And our, one of our usual co-hosts, Ari Bahari, unfortunately cannot join us tonight. Uh, we wish her and her family well, though, and we hope to have her back here next time. If you're new to the podcast, we are currently covering the events of in Jonah's past that shaped him into the Bonnie Hunter he is today. So far, we've gone over his childhood and years of the Apache, along with his time as an Army Scout. Today, we're covering what was possibly the most defining period in Jonah's life, the Civil War. For the sake of brevity... We'll be focusing mainly on events actually depicted in the comics, as there are numerous offhand references to Civil War battles throughout Hex history. For a complete list of those, check out Appendix A of An Illustrated History of Jonah Hex over on susanhillwig.blogspot.com. But before you do that, stick with us as we tell you all about the great Western action that's been popping up in the comics rats lately, not to mention the latest sightings of Jonah and his kin. So, for our news, there's actually been quite a bit coming out lately. We'll start off with Young Justice. Finally, in issue number 10, which dropped the same day we recorded the last podcast, we finally got a look inside that trunk that Jenny Hex totes around that apparently Jonah curated. Plus, over the last couple of issues, the cast has doubled in size for Young Justice. They've teamed up with other characters from the Wonder Comics line. Young Justice number 10 gave us a bit of a look back to before we got introduced to Ginny in the Walmart Batman Giant stuff. This is, say, maybe a few weeks or a few months before that. There's no dates on these, unfortunately. But, yeah, Ginny's mom is feeling a little poorly, and before she shuffles off the mortal coils, she finally takes out this trunk and shows it to Ginny and basically says, for good or for ill, this is your birthright. Cool. Yeah. And so we finally get an actual look inside the trunk, not Ginny pulling something out, not us looking in a corner and just seeing, you know, nice glowy go a la Pulp Fiction Rays of the Lost Ark sort of a thing. And when it first came out, we luckily were able to identify the majority of the items here. There was a couple of stumpers, though, that luckily uh, Comic Resources was able to fill us in on. Everyone seems to say there's a pair of ray guns in here, and everybody seems to be saying that these are belonging to Adam Strange, but model-wise, they don't necessarily match anything that Adam Strange used. However, they're actually very similar to ones used by Chastity Hex, who is presumably a relation of Ginny, who appeared in the uh, Bizarro miniseries a few years back. They're very, very similar to what she's toting around. We've got a hero dial in here. We have the Fabergé egg that was very important in the Batman Giant stuff, the Batman Universe story. There's one of Adam's size-changing belts. There is a bow tie, which either belongs to Jimmy Olsen or Johnny Thunder. Take your pick. Mm-hmm. There's no real... It's a bow tie. How much more distinguished can you get? Yeah. CBR also identified a summoning candle from way back in the Underworld Unleashed event. DC many... God, how many years ago was that now? That was... 
20 years ago, maybe 25? Uh, that was way, way back. There is the Orb of Ra, which is what gave Metamorpho his powers. There's an amulet that belongs to Isis over in the Marvel family. There is a green flashlight, which apparently is literally a flashlight wielded by a Green Lantern from another universe. This was revealed in the Multiversity series by Grant Morrison. And then we also have the Jar and the Bell and the Wheel, which were the summoning of uh, the Demons 3. Probably saying this incorrectly, Abnagazar, Wrath, and Ghast, who uh, Felix Foss first summoned back up in Justice League of America number 10. So there's some pretty wild items in here. Cool stuff. Yeah, definitely, definitely cool stuff. Definitely some powerful stuff. Definitely things you'd want to keep an eye on. Like with the stuff summoning the Demons 3 and the Orb of Raw and everything like that. Um, now, I, I have kind of an issue with this possibly retconning Jonah Hex because... You know, he passed away in 1904. A lot of this stuff wasn't available then or has been seen since. So I'm wondering if they're wanting to recast Jonah as like a time-hopping Indiana Jones. Yeah, there was this big question of whether or not Jonah left his timeline to get this stuff or this stuff fell into his timeline. And also with the one, the green flashlight, now we're getting into different realities. This is, you know, that's not Earth Mm. 1, Earth Prime, whatever you want to say, item. This is... Well, he's in contemporary Earth at the moment, isn't he? So once they get him mm. into contemporary Earth, he either collects it when he just happens to be in Earth at contemporary times, or as you say, there are a whole lot of unseen adventures which we'll get sometime in the future, showing that he was time-travelling a bit more. He, he does tend to be a, a character that people sort of call on to, to like, I'm time-travelling, oh, I ran into Jonah Hex. He can join my posse and we'll sort this out. So. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, Jonah never travelled, he never did time-travelling of his own agency. He was always a victim of being snatched or thrown or and having to deal with it. It was, wasn't something that he did voluntarily. So, yeah, either he gets thrown, yeah, either he gets tossed or things get tossed at him. Yeah. yeah. So so I would like to put forth that, yeah, this trunk may, be, may originally have belonged to Jonah, and starting with the Fabergé egg, which kind of fits the timeline, but I think the bulk of this stuff probably belongs to Woodson, Jason's son, mm-hmm. because Woodson was a private detective in the 30s and 40s, and possibly into the 50s when we start seeing some more of this stuff, like the bell and the wheel and the hero dial the ray guns and all this other stuff start popping up in the books yeah and there's also again these ray guns look a lot like what again possible relation whether it's sister or cousin or something of Ginny's, named chastity hex who was also a bounty hunter who also encountered weird stuff she met jimmy olsen and bizarro over in that series and by the end she had gone to space and that's where she got the ray guns i believe oh no no i'm sorry the ray guns came from area 51 and later on she went to space it's tough to keep track of we're gonna have to cover that her and a later episode but mm. yeah for all we know some of this stuff was hers and yeah. she or, dropped it off on earth one day and it's like okay yeah. aunt whoever i need you to hold on to this for a while you know plus there's always the possibility that jenny's mother was somehow doing stuff i mean we don't really know anything about her apart from that she's not very well and you know time travel True. has its costs you could write an interesting story about her getting involved with this sort kind of stuff and then deciding she'd stop or things. So that's another possibility. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, the closest she gets with her is she says, it's actually on the next page facing the shot of the trunk. All her mom says is, I personally never opened the trunk but once. But yeah, who knows how much stuff she threw in there when she opened it the one time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And and the construction of the trunk is quite interesting because if you look at the picture, the books at the top actually go back into the trunk past the wall. We don't see any interior walls in this trunk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's bigger almost, on the it's inside. Like a, it's, it's a TARDIS trunk. Artist so trunk even, bag of holding, Felix the Cat suitcase, uh, yeah. Mary Poppins so, suitcase. Wonder if it's got any of those portable holes. Something else that Ginny pulls out later on in the issue is actually rather useful. You don't really get a good look at it. It looks like it's two or three discs, like amulets or something, strung together. And near the end of the of the issue, when they're in the mix of big fight, she grabs a hold of it and what about a half dozen Ginnies of various sizes and shapes pop out and start fighting. One of them's like giant man size. Mm-hmm. So who knows? what that is she's basically become a massively overpowered character without doing anything so i'm just finding it frustrating after 12 issues that really she hasn't done very much apart from everybody goes wow you've got all that stuff cool and oh i want that i want that because that belongs to me she's going to need at some stage to have like a little mini series or her own title to actually make use of the potential that the box makes her able to do in the DC universe. You know, she can, every DC character could come looking for her because she's got something that they want, or she could just fight crime by opening the box and bringing out something new every week, open it up, take something out and you've, hear the story of i heard the story about how jonah got this and then you go back in time yeah amethyst just got her own series i think that just dropped today um when i was at the shop uh, amethyst number one was in my box and i was like i i'm i kind of flipped through and i'm like i'm i'm gonna pass on this sorry it's like i'm mainly getting this young justice stuff for jenny hex i'm sorry but yeah, the last three issues, she's done very little. She's been there. She's contributed a couple of lines. And then a whole bunch of these other kids start showing up. The other Brian Michael Bendis creation, Naomi, has shown up. The new Dial H for Hero kids have shown up. And even she immediately went, wait a minute, I have one of those in my trunk. Because there is an H mm-hmm. dial in there. And the uh, Wonder Twins have shown up and everything. So it's like, yeah, everything is very, very, very busy. So yeah, we got this lovely issue, issue 10, where we got some explanation. We got a little look in the trunk. And then we've been able to do virtually nothing since. Maybe they could split the team into like a Young Justice West. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that, that worked great for the Defenders back in the years ago. Uh, w- oh, oh, West Coast Defenders, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, who knows what the new editor's going to do? Can't say. And with the latest issue, this issue or the issue before, where we got somebody else now on writing as well, Bendis and gentleman by the name of, I believe it's David Walker, is now co-writing this with Bendis, so I don't know if this means Bendis is going to be moving on or what, but yeah, now we got two people. But yeah, unfortunately, other than that bit about the trunk, we don't have much new to expound on as far as with, with Jenny goes. Yeah, she's definitely getting, getting pushed into the background here. Because hmm. right, I'm going to be hard-pressed to bother buying future issues after 12 It's fun, but it doesn't give any of the characters enough room to breathe very much. Because I enjoy titles where you've got lots of random DC stuff just sort of happening because it's it's interesting to learn about, you know, the whole universe and different characters. But it's just a constant sort of stream of new people. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of just hanging in here just for the reference at this point. So hopefully some, something good will happen, something, you know, interesting happen. Ginny gets a miniseries, something. But yeah, it's getting a little hard to follow again. So we'll just go ahead and move on. So we're moving on from Ginny Hex. We're going over to Jonah because darn it, this is his podcast. 
Jonathan Sheck popped up in part two of uh, the CW's Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover event. This time around, though, he played Joan Hex of Earth 18, who had taken possession of a Lazarus pit and used it to fix up his face. No scars this time. That was a surprise. Well, it, it may have been pre-Scar Jonah, too. I'm not entirely certain about that. Who was the, the character that grabbed him and uh, said, oh, you, know, you were eventually going to get this scar anyway, so I don't feel that guilty. Yeah. That was White Shoot, Canary. I don't. Yeah, yeah, White Canary. They hardly ever use code names on this show, so I forget people's yeah. names. She's, she's not in <laughs> tights. How am I supposed to know it's Canary? <laughs> yeah. This is, this is an issue I have with, the, with these shows, but... I knew Jonah would be there, so I watched, and it was yeah. Crisis, so I watched all five parts, and we're, we're going to move on. We're just going to focus on that five minutes that Jonah <laughs> X was there. Yeah. At, and I kind of wrote, wrote a whole backstory that the reason he has the Lazarus pit was because he was dragging the body of Jeb Turnbull, ah. and he was going to throw it in there and resurrect Jeb Turnbull and finally get Quentin Turnbull off his back. <laughs> that could work. Yeah. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So should I go out and watch all of Infinite Earths if I can scrape it together from the various streaming services I've got, or can I live without it? I would live without it. I'd personally live without it. If you have that much self-loathing, you really need to get some therapy. Okay. It's like if you're really into the CW show, then maybe you'd get out more of it. I, I would. I was, ever since I started, you know, writing as a career, it's like I've become more and more critical of, of storylines when they drop the ball. And this one it was just making me go, why did you do certain things? Why did you do that? Things that went uh, nowhere or things that resolved so quickly, it didn't make sense of why you did it in the first place. That sort of uh, issue. I, I would say I would get on YouTube and look for clips of John Cryer's Lex luther that was worth the price of admission a couple of times yeah i cringed when they first said that john cryer was gonna do lex luther but yeah what little i've seen it's like no he's actually doing a pretty good job well and the tie-in was he was in superman 4 i think he was i think he was lex luther's kid he was lex luther's nephew yeah there you go good thing i brought my drums uncle lex (laughs) yeah Off the subject, my husband actually just recently showed me an old John Cryer movie called Hiding Out, which was very, very good. I like I like John Cryer as an actor. I just wasn't sure if he'd be able to do Lex Luthor. So I was I was pleasantly surprised when it's like, no, no, this is actually good. But I'm still not too keen on the on the shows. Oh, um, other highlights from the uh, crisis thing was Kevin Conroy playing an old Batman. Hearing him say certain lines was just like, oh, oh, okay, this is this. And that just happens to be in the same episode that uh, Jonah Hex is in. It's the Batwoman mm-hmm. episode. It's part two. So you get that, and you get what, Brandon Ralph pulling on the uh, Superman tights again, playing right. Kingdom Come Superman. He did a mm-hmm. good job with that, too. They did tie in Tim Burton Batman and the 1966 yes, yeah. Batman. So, so those yeah. were kind of cute, getting those hooked in. Yeah, that was yeah, those in the first episode. And I'm also a Robert Wolf fan, so I was like, yay, Alexander Knox! I was happy. Bert, yeah, the Burt Ward stuff was got a chuckle. Yeah, overall, it's like story-wise, like this needed to cook a little more, I think. A I lot more. I don't know. But we're not in charge. We're not allowed to have any input here. Yeah, we can go start our own network and make our own shows. <laughs> As I tell my husband when he says he wants to be rich, I just say, I'm working on it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> go buy me some scratchers. Okay. Well, let's move on to some other Western stuff. There's a lot, lots, unfortunately not 
much Jonah Hex, but lots of other Western stuff suddenly propping up. Still on the DC front, if you follow the Black Label stuff, question of Death of Vic Sage. Overall, I'm hearing is a very good story. I, I honestly, the only thing I've read so far is issue two because it well, it wasn't necessarily a standalone issue. It did deliver a good Western in and of itself, and it just happened to have some uh, Hex alumni working on it. Jeff Lemire, who illustrated Jonah Hex number 69, volume two, was writing on it. Bill Sinkovich was doing the inks. There was a variant cover by Eduardo Riso, who worked on Hex as well. So it's like, it was nice. It was a good Western that just so happened to have elements of the question in it. I do have issue one on back order, and I'm going to be getting issue three just so I have the full story. But just so the Western part is just issue two. But it was pretty good. Okay. Any of you guys uh, check that out? I had a look through it. it. It didn't stick in my mind. Like, I've read it, but I can't recall anything about it <laughs> apart from the artwork. So, yeah, it. I kind of read a bit of uh, the question. It didn't really fit into what I knew of the questions, but it was readable but unmemorable. Yeah, my impression of what we've gotten so far and what's coming, it's very surreal, different than I think what you normally get for question, but still, it seems like an interesting story. My shop knows my taste. If there's something Western, he'll point me towards it. <laughs> Good deal. Yes. Um, uh, on, a, on a segue, yes. talking about the question and also Jonah Hex, I was poking around CBR, Comic Book Resources, and they had yes. a list of 10 DC characters who need R-rated movies. Oh. And the question clocked in at number 10, and then you roll through The Parasite, Ventriloquist and Scarface... Mm. Magpie, The Human Target, Green Arrow, Solomon Grundy, Dead Man, and number two is Jonah Hex. Nice nice to rank high. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, got beat out by Lobo. Yeah, clocking in at number two was pretty good. So That would be a good crossover, wouldn't it? Jonah Hex and Lobo? Yeah, they're both yeah. bounty hunters. <laughs> Why not? We need to reboot the Brave and the Bold and start with that one. So, as long as it's original, you know, from the 1990s Lobo, not, not, the, skin, not the skinny guy. Yeah. <laughs> No, Wait, not the original, not the original one from Omega Men where he had the clown makeup. Oh, when it's like half purple, half orange. Yeah, we have that issue. No. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that was my segue. Uh, no, it's a good segue. It's a very good segue. But yeah, uh, let's see who else we got uh, cranking out western stuff. A lot of stuff from Marvel, actually. I've never been big on Marvel westerns. I'll occasionally pick up a Two Gun Kid or a Rawhide Kid, an old one, if I find it cheap. But no, apparently they made uh, quite a few references. The recent Marvel Comics issue 1000 and 1001, they name drop some of the western guys in there, and they also have a modern day gunslinger named the Masked Raider, who I guess is, his mask is made literally out of piece of the entity Eternity, you know, you usually see him in the comics, and it's just outlined with stars and planets and everything, apparently a piece yeah. of this guy, apparently this mask, if you wear it, makes you basically on absolute equal power terms with whomever you're fighting, it's, it's democracy in action, basically. Equal? So this guy's... Equal, yeah. I, I, I was going to say, you know, it's like, okay, so you're going up against a real skinny bank robber that has, you put it on and now you got no power. You're just another skinny guy. <laughs> but if you go up against Captain America, you are now in equal terms with Captain America. So, But he's going to beat you because he's got the skill knowledge. You, Yeah, you know, I didn't look too deep into this. I don't know if the skill knowledge transfers over. I do not know. Okay. We've also got History of the Marvel Universe. Uh, they just released a, I believe it was a six-parter, which is just, it's similar to the history of the DC Universe way back in the day, except they took more pages to do it. And they made reference to their Western guys, too. So nice to give them a nod, even though they don't really do much with them. 
And for you Spider-Man fans, Spider-Verse number four put the spotlight on Ponderosa Parker, alias the Web Slinger, Earth 31913. And I picked this one up. It was amusing. I'm not a Spider-Man person, really. It was rather amusing. So if you get a chance, go take a look at that. You might like that. And outside of the big two is a bunch of companies that are putting out Westerns now. I've been picking up the last few months Kill Whitey Donovan from Dark Horse, uh, which has apparently already been optioned for a movie. That one's that one's been pretty all right. Undone by Blood or The Shadow of a Wanted Man. That's from Aftershock. Only got the first issue so far, and it's like half Western, half Grindhouse. I mean, literally flipping from one page to the next. You have the Western, which is like a dime novel sort of Western. And then contrasting that, we have a groundhouse style of a young lady in the 1970s who's trying to avenge the death of her parents. And the Western dime novel is literally what she's reading during her journey. Oh, the back of the, okay. Yeah, the back of the book even has about two or three pages of text from the Shadow of a Wanted Man mock dime novel. I thought that was a really interesting way to do it. Ed Brubaker is doing something from Image coming up soon called Pulp, which is, again, is similar to the Undone by Blood. It's going to be half 1930s story, half Western, or at the very least Western influence. I don't know if it's going to be exactly mm. half and half like that. And there's a Kickstarter for a book from David F. Walker and Solid Comics called The Hated, which appears to be like a alternate history, you know, what if the South won Civil War sort of book. Lots of stuff, lots and lots of stuff coming out. So Westerns are not dead. You just gotta know where to no. look. Well, and I don't know if I'd mentioned before, Image Comics has Manifest Destiny, which oh, yeah. is not technically a Western, but it's the whole searching through the Louisiana Territory. It's Lewis and Clark that are actually encountering monsters and zombies and all kinds of weird stuff. It's a very good read yeah i've been picking that one up since the beginning unfortunately they'll do these lulls where there'll be months with no issues and then they mm-hmm. spit out a spade of but they are, yeah they are definitely good yeah you get i don't know how true this is to history but sacajuia is a badass yeah <laughs> even when she's <laughs> pregnant she's a badass <laughs> don't mess with her at all nope no 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 there's yeah there's been some great stuff in there i think they're up to about issue 42 about now so okay. there's quite a bit out there they got trades and yeah yeah it's yeah it's definitely more frontier than western but it's good stuff any other news gems we want to drop on the folks there was the spate of people referring to jonathan shrek in talks with jimmy palmati about them trying to come up with an idea for a tv show or something there's something being pitched or they kind of talk amongst themselves about something they think they would like to try and pitch to somebody yes yes i'd forgotten about that yeah um the folks over at uh, wzon had sent us a couple of excerpts from their podcast one with jonathan sheck and one with jimmy palmiati if you go over to the via pony express facebook page you scroll down a bit you should still be able to find those we put them up separately and yeah they were both discussing about yeah trying to get something put out there as far as i know no not yeah nothing has succeeded yet nothing's been able to stick although i know hbo is doing stuff hbo is going to be doing a green lantern series they're going to be doing i want to say if they're using the strange adventures title for like an anthology type series so maybe we can get some Jonah Hex turning up in there or maybe or it could be they're working on a standalone I'm not too sure which but we wish them the best of luck if they do get they can get that out there yes it would be nice for once if big company actually said oh these people have worked with something before and they like it and they'd like to do a story about it why don't we go with them instead of somebody (laughs) who was just goes oh yeah i want to do jonah hex but i'm gonna make him a gay biker who is in the future because that ticks all the boxes 
I have an idea. Who can we wrap around this idea that did, will work? Didn't they do that to Kid Colt? Or Marvel did that years ago. Rawhide Kid, the, yeah. Not the biker part, but yeah. yeah. But then again, yeah. they, they, that was done by some people who'd worked with the character before, and, and it was really funny. And still was a bit out of left field, yeah. Um, I don't mind left field. It's just when they get the ditch digger to make the story. It's <laughs> Yeah. Hey, let's let's put in zombies and giant worms. Go for it. Yeah. I think that was yeah, that was Joe Lansdale totally misremembering what was in the books. Remembering it definitely being a little more mysterious and supernatural and was like just kinda he cranked the dial a little bit, not realizing he was moving the wrong dial. <laughs> God bless him. There is some good stuff in there, but it was definitely not what you what we normally get for Jonah Hex. Yes, it, it's like getting a big bowl of white gravy when what you want is brown gravy. Oh, <laughs> they they don't have they don't have white gravy in New Zealand for some reason. Thank the gods. Very tightly sealed container will ship you no, some. We'll take Trump before we take your white gravy. That is wow. <laughs> we'll ship him hmm. in an airtight container then. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, okay. That that'll do it for the news today. <laughs> we we haven't got political news in here today. That yeah, that'll about do it for the news. Uh, we'll move on to our main topic now. Right now, after a word from our sponsor. White gravy, white gravy. God says he loves us. White gravy. White gravy for when you don't want to see your meat and you don't like beer. White gravy, white gravy. God says he loves us. White gravy. I'm popping open a bottle of white gravy. We last left our hero. Uh, unfortunately, his uh, fiance Cassie Wainwright, had been killed by a Comanche. Presumably, he left scouting behind to uh, hunt down the killers, and unfortunately, never found them. And as we uh, said in the last podcast, we actually kind of lose track of Jonah for a couple of years. He does not. The, ne- the next time we see him, if you're in, on the timeline, would the Christmas of 1861, as seen in uh, Weird Western Tales number 29. The Christmas time, and he and his good friend Jeb Turnbull are going back to Jeb's home. Turnbull Plantation. This is where we first meet on face-to-face Quentin Turnbull, who up to this point we'd only seen in the Jonah Hex stories in Shadow. We'd only seen his hand. We'd only seen the Eagle Top Cane. And we knew he had a vendetta against Jonah Hex. It's not till this issue we learn the why of it. So there is this question a bit of why he joined the Confederacy. If we go, it wasn't until about a couple of decades later, actually, in uh, Jonah Hex, Why Does the Worm and Such, number two, where we get anything close to an explanation. The gentleman was accusing him of being a racist. Basically, he just lays straight out. I fought for the Confederacy because I felt the South was my country. I fought because Yankees come down here. He just he doesn't he doesn't believe in slavery. He's not a racist. You know he mm-hmm. doesn't believe in you know keeping the keeping the black man down or keeping anybody down. He basically, as I said many one many years later, Jonah Hex hates either everyone equally. Yeah. Well, he was born in Missouri and then you know ended up out in out west being raised by the Indians. So he was really never part of the antebellum South. He wasn't part of the hierarchy that was the slave owners. Yeah, and I always felt that he kind of more identified with, I don't know, the the part of the South that was, you know, this is our country and the North is coming in telling us how to do our stuff and who are they to tell us who to do our stuff and we're going to break off like they broke off back in 1776. There is a, a 
brief reference or mention he sort of says how he was searching for family that was one of the another one of the reasons was mm -hmm. you know he didn't have his real family and he'd lost his indian family but his state or his friends was another reason for joining up that camaraderie right he, want, he wanted to belong to something yeah yeah in issue 29 at christmas the they have like a slave revolt they end up going out and beating a bunch of people and some slaves get shot and you can see that jonah doesn't approve of this. He doesn't like it and it bothers him. Then we see the Emancipation Proclamation being signed and then Jonah makes a decision to leave the Confederacy. So yeah, I don't think he was ever fighting to maintain slavery. He had other reasons he was out there. Unfortunately, uh, most people went, you know, he's, de he's definitely the uh, state's rights sorts, but unfortunately one of the main state's rights is protecting slavery. So it all, unfortunately, all gets it's all this big knotted ball that's hard to unravel but yep. yeah well i get to that we'll get to the uh, meat of that a little bit further down the timeline not long after the christmas on the uh, turnbull plantation we get a special guest star in jonah hex volume one uh, number 37 jonah gets to meet stonewall jackson on a special mission yep a special special mission out at harper's ferry he is not part of general jackson's regiment they he meets they both just so happen to be on a scouting mission, separate scouting missions, and they run across each other. And basically, Jackson asks Hex for a favor, <laughs> helps uh, helps him out with the eventual raid on Harper's Ferry. Yeah, it was great. Like, yeah. oh, I've just met you. You seem to shoot well. I want to send you on a suicide mission. Will yeah. you agree? Sure. <laughs> and we discover why Jonah hates water. Because <laughs> he runs into the largest waterfall in the state of West Virginia. You know, you're right. Chronologically, I don't think it's m mentioned before this about how much Jonah hates water. Got to be a reason yeah. there, man. It's got to be a reason. Yeah, and almost, almost drowning going over a uh, waterfall. That's a really good reason to stay out of the water. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and you, you did look back through the issues. I'm going to have to start cataloging how many times he goes over a waterfall or says, I hope there isn't a bear in this cave and there's a bear in the cave. <laughs> I hope this rope doesn't break. You know, I hope this branch doesn't break. Poor guy so. just jinxes himself. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, if you thought a little more positively, things might turn out better. Yeah, this rope won't break. Yeah. And also, this issue mentioned that, if I remember correctly, that Jonah was in the 7th Cavalry, and other issues uh, mention that he's in the 4th. Yeah, yeah, the 4th and 7th thing is definitely a bone of contention. Again, we try, I try to puzzle it out. If you go Again, if you go over to Appendix A on a, a, a Illustrated History of Jonah Hex, I've done my best to puzzle it. But yeah, in the comics, there's really no explanation. When they mention the Fort Charlotte Massacre the first time, as we'll get to, they say he's in the 4th Cavalry. When Palmiotti and Gray revisit that incident during their run, they mention the 4th Cavalry. Mm -hmm. Every other mention of Jonah's regiment in every other comic, though, says the 7th Cavalry. So I'm not 100% what happened if Fleischer simply forgot between one mention or another because there is many years in between, and he said 7th, or if there is another meaning to that. So many, so many of his uh, regiment died at Fort Charlotte that he got moved to another regiment. That is a possibility. But yeah, since this uh, book takes place prior to the Fort Charlotte massacre, the fact that he's saying Seventh Cavalry here when he, in theory, might still be in the Fourth, is just like, um, oh, we're gonna ignore that. Uh, we're we're gonna have to skip over that. <laughs> well, and we could also go with the theory that uh, a lot of times during the Civil War, people would get separated from their group and just hook up with whatever regiment or platoon was nearby for the time being until they got back to where they were supposed to be. That is a possibility. He may, may be, this may be an entirely different 7th Cavalry, yes. I had not considered that. 
But yeah, another thing we should mention, again, this is Jonah Hex Volume 1, number 37. We find out near the end that you folks may or may not be aware that uh, Stonewall Jackson died in a battle. Matter of fact, he died because he was shot by his own men during the uh, Battle of Chancellorville. Uh, According to DCU history, Jonah Hex is the one that accidentally shot him. Once again, think... Yeah, once again, things just kind of happened where Jonah and Stonewall Jackson were in the same place, even though they weren't. Jonah was not serving directly under Jackson. Here comes Stonewall coming into camp in the middle of the night, and bango. Yeah, and they, they show uh, Jackson dead immediately when uh, in the Earth Prime, where we're at, he died several days later. Yes, pneumonia. Complications mm-hmm. from pneumonia is what killed him, actually. Not as dramatic and, uh, as being shot by Jonah Hex. No, not as dramatic as being shot by Jonah Hex. No. He would have preferred it. Uh, the Jonah Hex way. Yeah, between pneumonia and getting shot by Jonah Hex, let's let's go with something a little more infamous. And this is actually, of all the things that get carried over into the New 52, Jonah Hex shooting Stonewall Jackson is one of them. It's a throwaway line in, I believe it's the same issue where uh, Jonah meets Mr. Gold, All-Star Western number 19. And somebody just kind of blurts that out when they meet Jonah. It's like, didn't you shoot Stonewall Jackson? Jonah just says, it was an accident. Moving on from there, we have another moment in Hex history that we can put a date to, specifically a date of September 18th, 1862. Prior to this, Jonah's regiment had done a raid on Fort Donaldson in Tennessee. Unfortunately, just about everybody got wiped out in the raid. Jonah is one of the few, if not the only, survivor of the raid, and the Union decides to make an example of him. They torture him, they Time to a uh, St. Andrew's cross, which is basically a, an X for those who don't know. And then whip the living crap out of them. It's actually, it's almost implied in the issue that that might have been how he got his scar. Kind of a retcon there, but we find out later on that's just, no, that was just a bit of artistic license there. But yeah, they stick him on a raft on the Cumberland li- River, basically set him as an example down the river. Luckily is rescued by a doctor and his family and uh, nursed back to health. Spends quite a bit of time there, actually. Long mm-hmm. enough, all the way through that, you know, that he's there when the Emancipation Proclamation comes down. That's September 22nd, and when that is issued. It does, although it does not go into effect until January 1st. Basically, it's kind of like fair warning on Lincoln's part. You get, you have, like, you got four months to give it up, or else. I believe it's in, yeah, it's in uh, January when Jonah finally leaves a place due to some. I believe they were deserters. Well, they're wearing Confederate uniforms, but they say they're not ours. We stole them. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So we don't know where they're from. But yeah, they uh, break into the house. They kill the doctor. They try forcing themselves on the doctor's wife. And Jonah does what Jonah does best. Bury people and look sad. Yeah, that too. <laughs> kind of a heck of a thing. Here's Jonah recovering from some severe wounds given him by the Union Army when the proclamation comes down. And yet he still feels okay enough to surrender himself to those same forces. Not Well, not exactly the same forces, but Senate's surrender himself to the Union sometime in mid to late January of 1863. After having a heart-to-heart talk with Jeb Turnbull over the matter, for the sake of reference, this is in uh, Weird Western Tales number 29, it's in Jonah Hex volume 1 number 35, and Jonah Hex volume 2 number 46. All three of them more or less the same story. A little bit of variant here and there. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. 46 left out what I thought was one of the better parts of the story. In Weird Western Tales 29 and Jonah Hex 35, when Jonah surrenders to the commander at the fort, the commander decides to use Jonah, or I guess humiliate him in front of his guys, 
whenever they capture the rest of the Confederacy. But the the one line is that's in both of those issues, the commander engineers the escape and saying, we don't have enough food to feed our own guys. We can't feed all these Confederates. And if they try to escape, we can shoot them legitimately. That's really not put forth in issue 46. Yeah, you're right. I'm looking it over again. Yeah, in the previous ones, both written by Fleischer, Jonah's essentially moved to solitary confinement. That's how he's able to get out <clears throat> and uh, get the other guys free. In uh, Palmati and Gray's uh, version, yeah, they're all put together. Well, I, I, I think in Palmati and Gray's version, they don't show Jonah in solitary, but there's a line saying, you know, he got in with the rest of the guys. They, they kind of, I think they abbreviated that. But the fact that the whole escape was actually planned by the commander so that he could rid himself of those pesky rebs is basically a, a Fleischer construct, which yeah. I think, you know, makes the commander like really the bad guy. And this just wasn't a bad decision on Jonah's part to try to engineer an escape. He was played a fool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, having yeah having no idea that yeah he was every single part he's set up the commander humiliates him and jonah in front of his own men making him say like oh yeah you're working with me and then here he is you know trying to spring him and then here's all the eyes it's like yeah i do not blame his fellow rebs for thinking he was a traitor this was perfect setup absolutely perfect yeah and i believe it was weird western tales 29 that shows jonah tracking down that union commander years later and basically taking him out with jonah's own hand so he got some level of revenge there yeah, it's very quick. It looks like there might be something similar at the end of number 46. It's hard to tell if that is the command. There's a, basically a guy that Jonah's killing right at the very, very end of the book and saying, you know, basically, Jeb was my best friend in this war. Nobody calls Jonah Hex a traitor. And he kills this guy. I'm presuming that is the commander. It's hard to tell due to the art and the shadows if that is the same guy. Might he looked not. more like a confederate for some reason because he's down in the he's down in the swamp in the water so i kind of took it that it was somebody within the group that accused him of being a traitor or something you know that could be it too because yeah i'm looking at again it's like yeah union boys their uniforms are very very blue and this is is more of a blue gray just a little a little tough to read on the art on that one yeah, this is pretty much the def- the defining moment of Jonah Hex's Confederate career. This is the one that, that gets referenced over and over again. As we said, there's three different versions of this. They're all essentially the same. Oh, one, one glitch in the Palmiati and uh, Gray version, when Jonah is talking to Jeb before he surrenders, saying about, you know, going to make my way to Fort Charlotte and spend the rest of the war twiddling my thumbs so I get to go home again. And Jeb comes back with, you ain't got a home, Jonah. You think them Apache going to take you back after you killed their chief's boy? Uh, oh um, my gosh that yeah. flew ahead yeah first time i read that that caught me i'm like oh oh we have a big continuity error here i am uh, hanging nope. my head in shame for not noticing that <laughs> well it's essentially a throwaway line but yeah mm-hmm. i don't think they realized that and when they wrote that up they're like oh wait wait he's not supposed to die yet for you mm. folks tuning in no tante is still alive and well <laughs> yeah. but that was also uh, the writers of the worm and such we cover, but the same thing happens there. He's got his um, scar at a time where I wouldn't have thought he had it. Oh, yeah, that was the Kents, which we'll be getting to. Yeah, yeah, another another just very, very brief mention as far as uh, Civil War activity goes. On the, on the subject of Joe Lansdale stories, uh, Jonah Hex Tukon Mojo has a couple of references to Jonah possibly being at Gettysburg. There's no flashbacks, but it's implied that he was at Gettysburg. 
as far as the timeline goes, I think it would be kind of tight, but possible. Yeah, that's July 63. Yeah, there's not much charted around that time that would contradict it. So, yeah, it is a possibility. But, yeah, when somebody brings it up and, you know, basically it's a a farmer in Tugan Mojo number four that helps Jonah out, gets him a horse, things Mm -hmm. like that. And as he's leaving, he's saying about how Jonah's on a water poster, and he says, I don't believe it for a minute. You ain't done nothing you, did, you didn't have to. I was at Gettysburg, Gettysburg too, Mr. Hex. I was a private. I seen, I seen how you did, and you, you damn sure ain't no back-shooting cow, coward like that poster says. And then you get to close-up of Jonah, and the classic Tony DiZaniga one tear rolling down the eye uh, Tim Truman uh, emulates here. As Jonah says, that was a bad day for everyone. So we don't know what happened to Jonah at Gettysburg. But from what I've been able to look up, roughly 52,000 men were either dead, wounded, or missing by the time the Battle of Gettysburg was through. So a lot happened that day. It might just be nothing happened to Jonah and he managed to survive. And there's just so much just kind of overwhelms him, just the idea of what happened, perhaps. But yeah, Lansdale is the only one to put Jonah at Gettysburg. Yeah, and if uh, Jonah's talking about the worst part of Gettysburg, that would probably be the Meadows. If you ever get a chance to go there and actually walk around the whole town and the battlefield, it is a very sobering thing of how many people were in such a small area at one time and how things turned out. Because mm. the Meadows is not very big, and the number of people that died there was just unbelievable. Uh, Darren mentioned a moment ago, the Kents, number eight, is our next spot on the timeline. The Kents, as the name um, sure implies to you, is not necessarily a Jonah Hex story. It's a 12-part miniseries by John Ostrander that also just happened to be drawn by Timothy Truman, mainly dealing with the Kent family when they first get out to Kansas. So you have a lot of Kansas history in there. You have bleeding Kansas, you have the Civil War, things like that. And yeah, they do very briefly slip in Jonah. That's yeah, what we can figure by what's little mentioned in the text. We know it play, took place in Missouri because they mentioned the Battle of Westport, which would put Jonah the absolute furthest west he is during the entire Civil War. This is, you know, basically getting to like another theater of war. It's so far, far west. Mm-hmm. The second furthest is Vicksburg and Mississippi. So it's not impossible that Jonah could be out there at this time. It's just odd. But the biggest oddity, as Darren mentioned, is the fact that, yeah, Jonah is uh, scarred in this picture. It's not as graphic as we usually see, especially under Tim Truman. But there is definitely, yeah, a scar running down the right side of Jonah's face. His one, his right pupils is kind of red and like a pinpoint. Mm. But the thing is, though, this is being told as a flashback. This is, I believe it's Hickok uh, telling this. Yeah. Yeah. So there is a possibility this is all bull hockey spun by Wild Bill Hickok, just a way of building his reputation. Right. Well, and it could also be, you know, the the way they tell it is, you know, I ran into Jonah Hex. You remember him. He's the guy with the horrible scar. And the people hearing it go, oh, yeah, he was in the Civil War. He had a scar. It could be how they're envisioning it. Or it could be an alternate Earth, for crying out loud. It could be an alternate Earth, yeah. Because there is, yeah, there is no other reference to this particular story, this particular event, anywhere else. Mm -hmm. It's not the only time, though, we have Jonah running across the Kentso in the 1800s, but that's a whole nother story. That's a whole nother kettle of fish. Well, and and Jonah does pop up, I think, in a later version or a later issue of the Kents, but he's just like standing on the corner in in silhouette. So it was a throwaway, really. Yeah, it's no dialogue, no interaction or anything. He's just kind of like, oh, yeah, there's Jonah Hex. Yeah, as far as specific mentions, any other specific mentions of Jonah during the Civil War, again, there's lots of 
storylines here and there, a mention of a battle here, a battle there, kind of like the Gettysburg thing. The only other flashback we get is Jonah Hex, Volume 1, number 30, where Jonah and his one of his uh, war buddies, Eddie Cantwell, has a skirmish with some Yankees. They go to take him prisoner. Eddie Cantwell opens, up, opens fire on them with a Gatling gun, and he apparently enjoys it. He's laughing the whole time. <laughs> He has the idea of taking the Union gold that they have. He's like, oh, we're, you know, we rich as kings. Look at all this. And Jonah's like, nope, this is spoils of war. We send it back to headquarters. This is funding the uh, Confederacy. But Eddie Cantwell's a little more clear-headed, and he's like, don't you realize this is just about over? There is no date on this. But we can, you know, we can imply by the way Eddie's talking that, yeah, maybe this is near the end of the war. It's got him surrendering two weeks after there was the signing of something with General oh, Lee yeah. and Ucilis oh, Grant. Yeah, after uh, two weeks after yeah. App- Appomattox, Jonah Hex yeah. uh, surrendered, but yes. It doesn't really, it kind of just sort of says, yeah, and then fairly shortly afterwards this happened on the 9th of April, but leaves it pretty open to how long it was. Yeah, we could, this could have been a couple months before, could have been a couple of weeks before. This could be happening somewhere you know in the middle of the war we don't we don't fortunately don't know because there's no other references to eddie cantwell anywhere else this guy comes in for this story and this is about it so yeah two weeks after uh, this uh the signing uh, the surrender is signed in appomattox specifically on according to this april 23rd 1865 jonah hex of the seventh light cavalry confederate states of america led his detachment to the federal stockade at lynchburg virginia Usually in this case, after they uh, surrendered, you would have to, I believe they would have to turn over all of their weapons. You had to basically sign a paper and swear that you would never take up arms against the Union again. And after that, everything was hunky-dory and you got to go home. Yeah, the use of the Gatlin gun would put this probably in the mid to late 1864 through 1865. Ah. Because the Gatling guns weren't used heavily early in the war. They just, they came in later on. Okay. Yeah, when I put this on the timeline in Appendix A, I did figure it roundabout as 1864. I was just kind of a, mm-hmm. a guess. I don't think I was using the Gatling guns as a reference. But Gatling gun is always a favorite, uh, you know, because it's an awesome gun. Everyone knows what it is. And oh, yeah. So and they throw the that about. Yes. Okay, so after uh, Jonah's surrender, now it becomes a question of, okay, now what do I do with my life? He has no family. His family's all abandoned him. His fiance is dead. He does not know where his Apache tribe is. He's probably got a pretty good idea that the Turnbulls don't want him turning back up over at the plantation. So things turn into a bit of a wandering around for him. And that would uh, lead us to Jonah Hex Volume 2. Issue 36, titled Seven Graves Six Feet Deep. This is, it's a bit of an anomaly in Hicks history because it's after the Civil War, but before he gets his scar. So it's a very Mm -hmm. short span of time. It's dated as 1866 in Pulaski, Tennessee. Jonah runs across a black woman in his travels. He's like, he's not meaning her any harm. He just happens to come across her. She sees the uniform, which is the literally the only clothes he has to wear. She freaks out, falls in the river as he tries to save her. She dies. Some of her family comes across this sight of a reb and dead woman, and they immediately assume the worst. They try to lynch him. Not long after, some uh, white guys come along, and they cut down, they kill all these black people, and they rescue Jonah, because they assume by his uniform, kind of the same way that uh, everybody else did, that he does not approve of blacks. This later leads to at uh, the home they take him to. Basically, they start talking about making sure that certain people don't get uppity and remember their place. 
And I think this comes into what you guys were mentioning before about trying to find a find a family, find a home. I'm trying to remember find where the uh, line is about that. Because yeah, Jonah's talking with this guy, these guys, and they're saying about you know times are changing, and with new change comes a new uniform for the opposition to Lincoln's law. We're thinking something white to strike the fear in black hearts. It's like they're doing everything, but saying the name of a certain secret society. I think it's interesting that uh, Jonah responds that uh, he says, for one, I ain't a son of Dixie. Yes. I ain't, a, I ain't a spy. The uniform is mine, earned and worn in battle. But as time has passed and reflections bolstered by several attempts at surrender have taught me, the thinking behind both blue and gray leaves a bitter taste. And then later on, they say, well, how come you're still wearing the uniform? And he says, a young man wanting for company of his own kind after years of imprisonment at the hands of the Apache is likely to take up any cause, no matter how foolish. There we go. That's what we were, uh, you guys were referencing uh, earlier. That's hmm. the bit. So, yeah, there's definitely a few reasons why Jonah would have joined up. Just none of them are necessarily, I support slavery. We'll, we'll say Jonah was confused for a while, not realizing what he was getting himself into. But mm-hmm. he seems... By the end of the issue, he seems pretty aware of what these guys are planning and does his best to make amends. They, they are all, with the exception of one, all cut down. And then he drags the survivor out to where the uh, black family was killed and forces this guy to dig a grave for every single one of them, except for the black woman that uh, Jonah could not save. That one he digs, he digs the grave himself. Um, this guy, though, basically dies digging these other graves. <laughs> Matter of fact, Jonah doesn't does not give him permission to die until these graves are dug. This was one of probably the best issues that Palmiotti and Gray wrote, and just the just the writing was just incredible. It was so evocative of like Ken Burns' The Civil War. It just had that ring and lilt to it. But mm-hmm. uh, re-re- rereading it. On page four, one thing that caught my eye, the young woman ends up in a river trying to run from Jonah. Uh, on page three, she goes over a waterfall. He throws mm-hmm. a rope to her. She hits her head on a rock. And on page four, when he pulls her out of the water, the rope is around her neck. Oh. It's wrapped around her neck and kind of under her arms. So mm-hmm. I kind of took it that you don't know if the hit on the head killed her or if he accidentally strangled her trying to save her. Oh, yeah, I did not catch that before. Yeah, it's a bit of a Gwen Stacy situation. Did the fall kill her or the sudden stop? Yeah, <laughs> and on, on page six, when the uh, family show up and they're beating the crap out of Jonah, one of them is holding the body of the young lady, and you can see mm-hmm. the rope clearly around her neck, which brings back the whole the lynching and everything else that was going on at the time. Mm-hmm. And definitely adds to their confusion of, like, you know, coming in, it's like, yeah, it looks like he strangled her yeah mm-hmm. and they take the same rope that they use that was on her to try to lynch jonah you were talking about the uh, southerners at the house kind of talking in code the one thing that came to my mind was years ago and this has been retold in different mediums but the clan kind of had a secret code to be able to identify each other Folks would ask, they would go into a new town. If you were a Klansman and you're visiting another town and you want to meet up with other Klansmen, you would ask if anyone knew Mr. Ayak. It was A-Y-A-K, which stands for, are you a Klansman? And if someone responded with, yes, and I know Mr. Akai, which is A-K-I-A, that stood for a Klansman am I. So there was this code that they used to talk back and forth. Yeah, I think uh, I have heard that before, yeah. 
Yeah, and you do a, you do a little bit of research, you find out that the Superman radio show in the 1940s actually did a couple of episodes on this in yeah, order to expose gonna, it. I was actually going to bring that up. Another thing that finished up today when I went to the shop uh, was a three-issue Superman story called Superman Sp- Smashes the Clan. It's actually based on that Superman radio show. It elaborates a bit from what the original radio show was. It is a wonderful story, and there's notes in the back regarding the clan and the treatment of Chinese Americans and things like that. I highly, highly recommend that you seek that out. I know they're going to put it in trade. I got def- definitely look it up. Superman smashes the clan. Yeah, and Mike Rowe does a did a wonderful little podcast on it. It's just six minutes long, but he knows how to spin a tale as well. Oh, I love Mike Rowe. I'll have to look that one mm-hmm. up too. This this issue bit on the page three where some. Historians petitioned to have Jonah Hex's exploits erased from publication on the wow. basis that it struck me uh, from this side of the world with uh, the coverage that comes up with uh, monuments being taken down and the flag being taken down. I always kind of felt like having a character in a Confederate uh, uniform on uh, TV these days it must be an issue for DC and the program makers. And perhaps this issue was Palmati and Gray kind of dealing with that issue within DC, perhaps. There might have been somebody brought up the issue like, guys, he's wearing Confederate uniform. How sustainable is that? And, and they've taken a very strong effort to justify it and put put something in there that's got a bit of nuance to say, well, actually, you know, it's a complicated issue and it's a complicated life if you were living through those times. and. Yeah, it is something that gets brought up from time to time in Jonah Hex history. Again, with Writers of the Worm and such, it's straight out there. We have this issue. It come, you know, it comes up here and there of, yes, Jonah served the Confederacy, but he did not believe in this. Sometimes it's just through his actions. Sometimes they literally have to spell it out like that. Although I have noticed regarding his uh, uniform, in the uh, past decade, they have been, I don't want to say softening things, but they have been moving away a bit from him having a full-fledged uniform. If you recall when they did Batman the Animated Series Showdown, he did not wear a uniform in there whatsoever. It's black and it's gray, and he's got a Confederate hat, or which you can apply to be a Confederate hat, but it is not a uniform. Near the end of Palmiati and Gray's run, they basically strip him out of the out of the Confederate gray. He's just wearing average clothes. Part of this being because he's trying to move away from that life. But when they were doing the Wonder Woman giant stuff, it was not really a uniform. It was just gray. Right. And I was this... even picking that up in one of the last episodes of Legends Tomorrow. Not not the last one he was in. It was the good, the bad, and the cuddly, where Heck played by Jonathan Sheck. He's still wearing part of the uniform, but I'm noticing part of it's getting stripped away to the point where at the end, he doesn't even have the hat on. He gives it to this one member of the uh, Wave Rider crew that he's taken a bit of a fancy to. And she's like, oh, oh, your old stinky hat. Thanks. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's like they're just slowly, slowly stripping it away. It's like they'll keep the gray, but they're trying to take down the uniform. And considering all the stuff that's happened the last years, I'm not necessarily against that. If they ever say that Jonah did not fight for the Confederacy on any level, they'll have a problem with that. But him just simply changing his clothes, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, that that's pretty realistic. The, the whole Fleischer years, he had the same thing over and over and over. And people would say, you know, 
how long can this coat last for crying out loud? You know, how oh, long yeah. can this hat last? But this issue came out, it's dated December 08. And yes. that's, I think that's before a lot of this potential purging of history started. It may have been right at the beginning, but I think yeah, they were it's... trying to explain why he had these clothes, why he kept them and why he had them for so long. And the explanation at the end is, yeah, it says, having studied the life and death of Jonah Hex, it is this author's opinion that the notorious gunman, whose bloody exploits have marked him as one of the most infamous figures in the American West, harbored no distinct hatred for men of color. His insistence on wearing the Confederate uniform until the day of his death in 1904 stands as a symbol of personal shame, a cross to bear. For he knew that anyone who saw the gray colors would greet him with hatred and revulsion. Those who saw the gray coat and extended their hand in friendship and the recognition of an idea which promoted the subjugation of another race did so at their own peril. As to the subject of racism, Jonah Hex was a man composed of hatred. Anger flowed through his veins in such quantity that no one knows the extent to which his tortured soul railed against the world. His detestation of his fellow man was not solely focused on a specific race, color, or creed. Jonah Hex loathed every human soul with equal enthusiasm. As any man, woman, or child knows, he had no friends, Jonah Hex, but he did have two companions. One was death itself, the other the acrid smell of gun smoke. And this kind of goes back to this whole code, this Mr. Ayak and Mr. Akai, or Akai. Jonah Hex would flush him out. He could handle people that hated him because he was wearing a gray coat. But if people kind of sided with him and nodded with him, he would take him out. Some of the, I think there was a Flesher issue where there was an old Confederate that Jonah gave money to or something. But that was, mm -hmm. I think, more in a recognition of a fellow man in service, a fellow veteran. Yes. Yeah. I think I remember that issue. Yeah. We've, we've kind of like, we, you know, we've both, we both suffered the same pains. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to help you as a as a fellow soldier, not necessarily a fellow Confederate. Yes. And I, I think if they were to do Jonah in a TV series, yeah, I don't think they have to put him in Confederate gray. They or they could put him in gray, and it wouldn't have to be a uniform. That's part of who he is, but that's not all who he is now. Once he becomes a bounty hunter, which is what we are slowly moving towards. But before we get to that, we have Jonah Hex Volume One, Number Eight where Jonah is finally rejoined with his Apache tribe. There's also retellings of this in Jonah Hex Volume 2, number 15, and All-Star Western, number 0. Again, more or less the same on both of those. But yeah, by Hansman's happenstance, at some point after the issue we just discussed, Jonah happens to find his Apache tribe just by sheer luck. And he shows up and finds out that White Fawn is married to Notante. And everybody is on different levels very surprised that Jonah is still alive. <laughs> of course, Jonah recounts what actually happened that day, which is very different than what Notante said. But he was uh, dead and Notante barely got away himself. So how do we solve this? Trial by combat. Tomahawk fight! Tomahawk fight! And obviously the one that wins must be the one who is telling the truth, because reasons. <laughs> they should have just dipped him in water and whoever floated was a witch. You know? Yes, exactly. Because he weighs as much as a duck. Yes. yes. <laughs> but Notante being Notante slipped Jonah a faulty tomahawk. It was The handle was already weak. It had been wrapped in leather. All it took was one or two swings. And guess what? Tomahawk is broken. Jonah is now weaponless in a tomahawk fight. No. Or is he? 
Because as we know, as us longtime hex readers know, Jonah is hardly ever weaponless. He usually keeps a knife under the collar of his coat. So he pulls it out, stabs Notante in the gut. Yay, I win. And leader of the uh, tribe, Cotante, who we'll later learn is called Cotante. We still don't have a name yet in these uh, early issues. It's like, nope, you cheated. Obviously, you you are the liar. My son is the winner. You are now going to pay. <laughs> Never bring a knife to a tomahawk fight. Exactly. Or if you do, don't bring it out. Don't let them know. In most circumstances, they would probably have just killed Jonah outright for this traitorous act. But he did save the life of the chief all those years ago. So they decide to brand him with the mark of the demon as a warning to others that he is half good and half evil. And so, as my husband likes to call it, uh, Jonah answered the iron. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's bad. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, he came up with it many years ago. He's like, he said, Jonah heard a phone, uh, uh, iron ringing like a telephone and went to answer it. And that's why his face looks like that. <laughs> harsh. Oh, harsh, yes. Uh, yes, for those of you all this time, been waiting on pins and needles of how Jonah's face got like that. There you go. Red hot tomahawk to the face. <laughs> Not a branding iron with the letters QT on it, as some not people that. will have you believe. Not hmm. Not caught in a fire in a church as a certain television show would have you believe. No. (laughs) But again, I can kind of understand not wanting to do that uh, sort of origin because, A, you get, you know, the one way you, the other way you get the nice uh, connection between the Turnbulls and Jonah. And the other thing is, you don't really want to show Indians as being like bloodthirsty like that. Even though there is, you know, explanation is not necessarily saying, you know, they're all bad or anything. They had reasons. But yeah, I don't know if we'll ever get 100% that origin story ever done. When we own a network and we're writing shows. (laughs) (laughs) I'm working on it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, Ari is going to be a a filmmaker. So yeah, we've, we've got the whole nine yards here. Aria, when you got the time, we need you to help us work on this. But yeah, at some point after this is when Eddie Cantwell comes back into Jonah's life at some point after this. Oh, wait, wait, before that, I got I got mixed up. We need some one, one more thing before uh, Eddie Cantwell. My mistake. Yes, the, the drunken accident. Yes, yes, Secret Origins uh, number 21, which has they label it as the Secret Origin of Jonah Hex, but it's not that secret because we just told you what it was, and that was published mm-hmm. like 10 years before this. But it does have what is possibly Jonah's first bounty kill. So it's talking about how after this scarring happened that Jonah went into a deep funk. He went into depression and you can't really blame him because as we were saying before, he's got nothing. He's got less than nothing now. Now he's missing half of his face. So one day, yeah, he's in town and he's getting very, very drunk and he sees a guy beating up on presumably his wife or a girlfriend. And he's so blitzed out of his mind that he sees his parents. He sees his dad beating on his mom. Well, Jonah now has a gun, and Jonah is very fast. So he mm-hmm. shoots who he believes at the moment to be his dad. And, of course, that he somehow suddenly sobers up the second, you know, seconds after this and realizes, like, oh, I screwed up. <laughs> he got very lucky, though, because he didn't just shoot any old guy. He shot bad dog Lucas McGill. I remember that off the top of my head. Luck- and luckily, this guy had a bounty on him. So the sheriff doesn't care that Jonah was rip-roaring drunk and hallucinating. He's like, oh, you killed a bad guy. Here's some money. Which Jonah, then Jonah then litters across the street. I think they realize, like, you know, I didn't really earn this. I was drunk out of my mind, and I thought he was somebody else. This is not my money. 
whoosh, right. he literally he literally makes it rain. He just throws it and leaves. Yeah, people how, are dying in the mud. How realistic is it, though, for the sheriff to be carrying around all the reward money for everything that possibly could get shot in his town? Yeah. Oh, you got him. Here's your $10,000. Bye. Yeah, I mean, so many stories are written around, okay, you've, you've killed him. You're going to have to wait a week for me to put through the paperwork and for the yeah. stagecoach to show up and people are going to want to shoot you. Yeah. The bank's closed. <laughs> Yeah, will you take a will you take travelers checks? Uh, yeah. we've, got, we've got some Bitcoin we can transfer to you. Yeah. What's your PayPal? You know, this guy's this just got a slush fund of reward he can just sort of willy nilly give out. I mean, there's there's a podcast somewhere for how did bounties actually work? Who paid them? Who had to prove what? What? Who got the receipt? Uh, was it tax deductible? Yeah. <laughs> Well, and ten thousand dollars. I mean, that was a lot of cash back then. That's that's mm-hmm. unbelievable. It was a couple hundred here, maybe a thousand at most. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I believe your rule, uh, Dwayne, is whatever whatever the number is, lop off the last zero, and that's more likely what it was. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. John John Albano was a lot more realistic, and Fleischer goes, "Let's just make it rain." So. We, we know that Albano would kill a man for a lot less money than Michael Flesher would have. Mm. <laughs> not, I'm not bad-mouthing the Albanos at all. Just... Oh. <laughs> Life is cheap. Mm. Uh, yeah, Jonah Hex, uh, volume one, number 31, is uh, what we're going to presume is after this. Jonah's a little more sober this time around and is in, in town and basically get coerced into being part of a uh, posse hunting down some bad guys. It's like he doesn't want to be part of it, but he's basically being forced into it. And they're waiting outside the cabin and the sheriff's saying, oh, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to wait him out. This might take, you know, might take a few weeks. And Jonah's like, I ain't got weeks. I'm not sitting out here all this time. So he does his classic climb on the roof, drop dynamite down, and, you know. Patent pending on that, yeah. Patent mm. pending. And the sheriff is rather impressed. He's like, you know, I'm sorry I don't have enough of a bounty to go around to, get, to give you a share. Why? But I can recommend some other guys might do you a little better. And he happens to have a poster, speaking of having things on you at a convenient time, a poster for his former army buddy, Eddie Cantwell. Eddie has decided, you know, to go for the easy money. Killing other soldiers with a Gatling gun isn't enough. No, 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 no. We got we to gotta go bigger. <laughs> Well, Jonah does not want his uh, old army buddy of his coming to harm, so he tracks him down, not for the bounty, but to talk him out of it, try to talk some sense into him. Unfortunately, associating with him puts a target on Jonah's back, and soon both of them are being tracked down by a notorious bounty hunter named Arby Stoneham. (laughs) And since I know this is part of one of your favorite stories, Dwayne, if you want to take over from here. (laughs) Oh, well... Yeah, yeah Ar- Arby ends up, I want to say, open up a chain of uh, ham restaurants. But no, Arby ends up killing Eddie Cantwell and kind of giving Jonah a few lessons in how to bounty hunt. And I think that the timeline of this one put it like the winter of 66. I think there was a mention in there. But yeah, after this, Jonah decides he's going to revisit Arby Sonam those many years later. And that leads to the gunfight at Murfreesboro which illustrated by the wonderful Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and probably one of the the best drawn issues out there. So 
Jonah meets up with a bunch of bad guys, cleans them out in Murfreesboro, and then runs into Arby, who is now at the end of his rope in a wheelchair and doesn't remember a whole lot of anything. And Jonah shows him some compassion, does not exact a revenge because time has taken care of that for him. Yeah, it's about 10 years in between Stoneham killing Eddie Cantwell and Jonah meeting up with him again. And yeah, I think Jonah realizes, like, I might be in that wheelchair someday. I might be in this bad of a mess. Of course, we don't. We know that's not actually how things turn out. Well, Jonah did end yeah. up in a wheelchair with two broken legs, but we don't talk about. Oh yeah, that that, that that's a that's later. That's later. <laughs> that later. And the issue that shall not yeah. be named. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely gonna have to have a you know worst issues episode, but. Um, yeah, Gunfight Mercyburg is definitely not part of that. Jonah, yeah, Jonah Hex number 32, yeah, is definitely one of the best. Once again, with his first time facing off with Arby Stoneham and the death of Eddie Cantwell, again, we have like an almost a bounty, almost a bounty hunter. Yeah, he's still not really it yet. And going by my own personal judgment, I'd say that the events that are in Jonah Hex volume 2, number 12, are probably the first definitely official, I am now a bounty hunter, I am doing this of my own volition story. Is taking place in a small town. I forget, I forget where exactly this, this is. This is... Uh, it takes place in Utah. Utah. Thank you. Yeah, there's a bit of a Mormon encampment outside town. Folks in town don't like Mormons. They've hired some, some other bounty hunters, not Hex, to wipe them out. Jonah stumbles across the settlement, and they recognize pretty quickly that Jonah is very handy with a gun, and they're trying to hire him to protect them. Uh, Jonah's not really having any part of it, though, and he's trying to settle this a little more peacefully. Goes into town to ask for supplies, and that's when everything is kind of laid out for him. The gentleman who uh, owns the town and owns the general store and everything, Mr. Dice, kind of lays it out. Let's say you are on an errand for that unnamed party. It wouldn't be the worst thing to happen in matters of personal finance. You should consider divulging the location of the camp. Even more profit to be had if you were to lead some associates of mine up to that mountain when the storm passes. Basically implying, I will pay you if you show us where those folks are so we can kill them. Jonah's yeah. not interested. Yeah, and Jonah kind of gets played for a sap again here. Because the, the Mormons yeah. send him into town. Uh, he kind of gets picked up by the bad guys, which I thought they were great. Ringo, Red Crow, Crazy Susan, Earl the Wretch, and Doc Grummet. <laughs> and, you know, if anybody else had set up this group of people, as far as being a writer, we would have got, you know, Red Crow, an angry Indian who blah, 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 you know, Crazy Susan who escaped from an insane asylum. And you'd get like a word balloon or two of their backstory. Gray and Palmiotti don't. You just get their names and Glacy does the artwork to where you can tell who is who. They look like who they're supposed to be, and you instinctively know what their powers are, why they're in the group, and why you should fear them. Palmiotti and Gray did that an awful lot as far as, let's just introduce a gang of people. that He did that in uh, Uncle Sam and the uh, Freedom Fighters. He would just toss a group of villains out there or another group of heroes, and here's the names. And just based on the names and how they looked, you knew what their powers were, and it really didn't matter because they were going to be gone by the end of the issue. So, But yeah, I, I did enjoy this, this story because Jonah kind of gets used by the Mormons to lure these people back, and then the Mormons end up throwing an ambush and killing all the bad guys. Yeah, the, uh, yeah these other bounty hunters force him to take him up the mountain. Definitely ends in a bloodbath for everybody. Jonah confronts them about that. Basically saying about, you know, the, the leader of the Mormons saying about there's no line separating right or wrong out here, Hex. Survival is dominant to all other things. 
I suspect you're well aware of the fact, you know, my only concern is the welfare of my people. And Jonah brings up about the Mountain Meadows Massacre, which was a real-life massacre in Warming, involving Mormons. 1857. And when Jonah confronts him about that, saying about, were you, did you do that as well? And the guy says, how many men did you kill during the war? That's different. Not to us. And that's why I think when Jonah, his mindset starts to shift just a little bit more. So then he goes back and, yeah, he takes care of Mr. Dice rather handily. Once again, asking for all the same supplies he did, but this time asking with a knife. The guy, of course, offers to pay him off. And so Jonah starts asking about, you know, about regarding bounties and stuff and saying about, well, how, you know, how much is this bounty? And he explains about how, you know, bounties vary depending on the person, you know. You get more for outlaws, wrestlers, and war criminals and like. And that's when Jonah reveals that he has already been paid very handily by the uh, Mormons up the mountains. They paid him in land. And that's when he concludes his business with Mr. Dice with a bullet. So you could say that, yes, this was Jonah's first official bounty. He had a contract with the Mormons. They paid him. The contract was to kill Mr. Dice. Mr. Dice is dead. So kind of like Jonah Hex year one. Basically, yeah. Hmm. He started out, he was heroic, and he was uh, getting things done for his side. But as he went through it and towards the end where surrender and things went bad, he started seeing more of the the complicatedness of the whole issue and of war and of what it did to people like him. Yeah, it just... Yeah, basically, yeah, when you look back over everything, from not not just the Civil War, but like all the way back to the beginning with his birth and everything, it's always, yeah, trying trying to belong, everything keeps falling apart. Try to find another place to belong, falls apart, and again, and again, and again. So, yeah, by the time you get up to our business with the Mormons and stuff, yeah, I think Jonas just realized, like, nope, it's just me. It's got to be just me. Nothing else works, you know? Despite owning uh, some land from Mormons, which I don't know if that doesn't have a question if he ever came back and claimed it. Or if he, uh... Well, there was another issue where he was paid off in land. Yeah. The one where um, the lady went in and he blew up the entire hotel or something like that. I think Palmiotti and Gray was kind of like building up this whole real estate deal that Jonah had a lot of land and a lot of money stockpiled and whenever he did the whole booster gold transfer he actually went and dug up some gold that he had buried yeah yeah there was yeah there's gold and there was money i think there might have been a, even a couple of deeds in the in the box and everything about whether or not mm-hmm. they'd still be good 150 years later is a question ha- yeah it's ha- like he was smart he didn't always throw the money away he didn't always give it to the widows and orphans he did mm-hmm. keep some of it stashed and half of the Wayne Casino, too. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. He was smart. But then again, again, also being with the Confederacy after a while, that paper money meant nothing. So I think he realized land is land, is gold is gold. Mm-hmm. Those weren't mm-hmm. change. Well, with that, I believe we have reached the end of another episode of Via Pony Express. Thanks for tuning in for this look back at how Jonah became the bounty hunter we know and love. And if you've missed any of the previous installments, they're still available on viaponyexpress.podbean.com. Be sure to let other folks know about the podcast as well, because we still got lots more to talk about when it comes to Hex. A lot more discussions, little themes. We're trying to land some interviews. Folks definitely want to keep tuning in. You can join our posse at facebook.com slash Express, where you'll find all the latest news and weekly offerings. Plus, you can leave comments, participate in polls, and browse through our extensive Jonah Hex photo gallery. And just so you know, we now have our own YouTube channel. Just go onto the YouTube and search the keyword Via Pony Express and look for the channel with the Moritat style art by our very own Arya Bahari. We had a couple videos up there right now, including a Jonah Hex Mandalorian mashup by our very own Darren Schroeder. Hope you enjoy that. 
You can also drop us a line anytime at jonahhexdeaponyexpress at gmail.com. Dwayne's Matching Dragoons blog can be found at jonahhex.blogspot.com. Check out Darren's Jonah Hex Corral. Go to lonely.geek.nz slash hex. Keep up with Aria by following at Aria Kidden on Twitter and at Embergeist on Tumblr. And for the latest installments of an illustrated history of Jonah Hex, they're available on susanhillwig.blogspot.com. The theme music used in this episode is Driving to the Delta by Lobo Loco off their 2018 album Arkham. We also used a clip from a Token Farewell by Jay Unger, which was created for Ken Burns' documentary The Civil War. Uh, thanks to actor Jonathan Sheck for his cameo recording of the Jonah Hex tagline. All characters mentioned in this podcast are copyright their respective companies and creators. And on behalf of all of us here at Via Pony Express, thanks for listening, and we'll see y'all out on the trail. Adios, everyone. See you later. I found a couple but, good uh, recipes for white gravy. How did you guys get on the subject of white gravy anyways? He said something about crisps, and I said, no, they're chips. Then we started talking about different flavors of potato chips, and I mentioned a white a biscuits and gravy, and he wanted to know what biscuits and gravy was. Because ah. he was just imagining biscuits and brown gravy, which, no. No, 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 no. No, you do rice and brown gravy, but not yes. something. But yeah, white sausage gravy. Oh, gosh. Proof that God loves us. <laughs> Wants us to be happy. <laughs> For people that don't like beer, there's white gravy. <laughs> four tablespoons of butter, four tablespoons of flour, two cups of milk, salt, <laughs> pepper. Mm. <laughs> 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 this means we have to explain chicken fried steak to you then, too. <laughs> yes yeah <laughs> it is so difficult to get that chicken to fry that steak <laughs>